Father God, we come before you as a group of believers, and we know that the answer to America's problem is not uh, going to be found in an election. It's going to be found when America turns its heart back to you. And it's going to start in the church, Father, because we know the church um, needs to be alive, living the gospel, speaking the gospel, touching hearts with the love of God. Our worldview, Lord, is not just about what we believe about certain subjects. It is that, but it's more than that. It's about living out what we say we believe and who we are. And Lord, we want to ask for your forgiveness for the church in America and for what America has done, the things where we've fallen short. But we still are so grateful to live in a country like this where we are free. And we, you know, this, uh, this country has been the envy of the world and people have fought and died to secure our freedoms. And with all that's wrong with America, we still believe there's a lot right with America, Lord. And we're just gonna ask that you would be merciful to us, Lord. We, we're gonna ask that you would move in a mighty way even through this election season. But we, we pray more than that, that revival would start in our hearts and our families. And we'll plant our flag and say like Joshua, I don't care what anybody else is doing. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you would move in a mighty way. Let it start with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 All right, God bless you guys, and welcome again to Living Truth. We're glad you're here. If you're a visitor for the first time, welcome. We are in the Gospel of Mark, and the way we do things here is we teach through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We happen to be in the Gospel of Mark. If you're interested, we're in the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights, and we're in chapter 30, so if you want to come out for the midweek study, we have a great time. It's a little less formal, I guess you'd say. We have snacks. At, we have snacks even on Sunday morning. What am I talking about? The difference is uh, Wednesday nights is cookies, Sunday mornings is donuts, so that's really the, that's really the critical difference, but anyway, but if you're interested in the book of Genesis and you're looking for a midweek study, we do gather at 7 p.m. There's something for the kids and the teenagers on Wednesday nights. So just keep that in mind if you want to come out this coming Wednesday night. Uh, Mark chapter 10, we're looking at verses 13 through 31. The first will be last and the last first. There's another thing that happened at our men's retreat. I'll bag on Pastor John for a second. Pastor John goes to bed early, but I'll tell you one thing he's always on time for. In fact, he's early for is the food. And here's how it worked. A half an hour before they would even open the kitchen, I'd be walking back to my cabin and Pastor John was walking towards the mess hall. And I'm like, hey, they're not even going to open for a half an hour. And what was your line, Pastor John? Early bird gets the pancake. What, what was it? If you want to eat, stay with Pastor John. Now, I have a tendency of showing up to things right about game time. Or sometimes I'm a little tardy, and the guys at the men's studies know this. But I do that based upon this particular verse. The first will be last. <laughs> what? You guys aren't buying this? <laughs> the last will be first. No, I don't think that's the proper application of that verse. All right, Pastor Michael's not going to wiggle out of this one. All right, Mark 10. Look at verse 13. And they, the people, were bringing, Mark 10, 13, children to him, that's to Jesus, so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. It could be they rebuked both the parents and the children. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, Mark 10, 14, and he said to them, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You might want to make a note that in Luke 18, 15, and there's a parallel in all three what's called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three gospels have this, and it says that they were bringing infants to Jesus or babies. You know, we, we do baby dedications here, and it's so sweet when you know, the little child is dressed up in their Sunday best, and the little boys often have a tie on, the little girls have a pretty dress on, and in times past, I've sometimes paraded the child down the aisle. Everybody, ooh, ah, ah. And the child, usually, you know, they want to mess with my microphone, but they look at you with just such these weird, uh, <laughs> and they study you. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's almost like there's a silent communication that goes on with little kids. You know, they stare at you, and you stare at them, and you, and you, you just kind of revert. Anybody revert? 
I start speaking baby language, you know, all that stuff. Anyway, very cute. Jesus loved children. And, and it, it appears that families lined up, so picture families lining up with little kids, probably infants or toddlers, and this is, you know, they're so cute at that age, although they have their moments, we know, but, you know, they're just learning how to walk and that kind of thing. That's probably the age group that Jesus was dealing with here. And his parents lined up. They wanted Jesus to bless the kids. And this was something traditional in Israel. They would take kids often to a prominent rabbi. And they would ask the rabbi to lay hands on the child and bless the child. And there's a patriarchal blessing that runs all the way through the book of Genesis. You can find it in Genesis 48. I think it's around verse 14, where even Jacob is blessing his grandchildren. And it was the idea of conferring a blessing. And this was a big deal in Jewish culture where, you know, kind of the patriarch of the family would speak blessings and he would even prophesy over the next generation. And so people, you know, hearing about Rabbi Jesus, he's a healer, he's a miracle worker, nobody speaks as he spoke, they wanted him to touch their babies, and wouldn't you? I mean, if you had a young one and, and Jesus was around, I mean, certainly this is something that I would want to do. And it interests me that this particular section comes on the heels of what Pastor Chris spoke on last Sunday, which is the issue of divorce. And it it's an interesting connection. I don't know how much to make of it, but right after the subject of divorce, then Jesus is blessing little kids. And when I went back and listened to Pastor Chris's message, he had mentioned that probably all of us have been touched in some way by divorce. In fact, there's books that have come out that we live in a divorce culture. And uh, I don't know about you, but my personal story was that my mom and dad divorced when I was four years old, and I never saw my father again. He called me one time on the phone in 31 years, and then I found out that he died on an Ancestry website, and I was a little shocked to find out that, you know, I confirmed his social security number, and when I had found that information, he had died three years before I came across that information. He was, he was already long gone. And so um, I just want to encourage you that Psalm 68 verse 5 says that God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. And we hear those verses and, and we certainly you know, take refuge in them. But I think it's interesting to see that Jesus was blessing little children. And he said, you don't, don't you keep them from coming to me. And if you've been a person that's maybe fatherless or maybe you come from a broken family or you know, that's part of your story, uh, the Bible goes on to say in Psalm 68, 6, that God sets the lonely in families. Maybe that's a reference, at least uh, in part, to adoption. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. And so the people were bringing children, look at Mark 10, 13 again, so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them, but Jesus, when he saw this, he was indignant, Jesus didn't just correct the disciples on this. When he saw the disciples rebuking the parents and perhaps the children, something like this, don't bother the master, don't, don't, no. He was indignant. He said, Do, you don't keep those little children from coming to me. I think little children were in many ways a breath of fresh air to the Messiah because he was dealing with all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of sin, all kinds of nonsense, all kinds of maneuvering among the religious leaders. And I think when little children came to him, he was probably lightened in his heart. After all, he's moving very quickly now towards the cross. He's about to die for the sins of the world. He's about to endure that terrible shame. And maybe the little kids were, for him, a respite. You know, sometimes we think, you know, I think they were thinking the best, like, don't drain the master. He's always busy. People are always vying for his attention. People always want to touch him. And Jesus was like, don't you keep those little kids from me. Little kids are refreshing. Some 85% of believers, by the way, trust in Christ between the ages of four and 14. I'm going to say that one more time. 85% of believers trust Christ between the ages of 4 and 14. Um, after the age of 30, it goes down to about 4% of people. So if you want to talk about child evangelism, 
If you want to talk about whether or not you should be involved in Bible release time, if you want to talk about the importance of a Sunday school teacher, you want to talk about the importance of uh, vacation Bible school, don't underestimate it, you guys, because the little children are precious to Jesus Christ. And uh, most people make their decision for Christ before the age of 18. D.L. Moody once returned from a meeting and reported two and a half conversions. Two, ad- two adults and a child, I suppose, someone responded, the host responded. No, said Moody, two children and an adult. The children gave their whole lives. The adult had only half his life to give. And I know some of us, you know, when we come to Christ at a later age, we, we sometimes have a regret, and the regret is that I couldn't give him more time. So if you're a young person here and you know the Lord, may I challenge you to redeem every moment you have that God gives you for the gospel and for what Christ has called you to do. We could even say this in light of the walk for life that happened yesterday in our city and all the children that are sacrificed on the altar of abortion in our country simply because it's legal, it's sad, it's a tragedy. Some of us have made the mistake, some of us who didn't know the Lord, or maybe you even knew the Lord and you went through an abortion. I'm not here to bag on you or condemn you. But I'm saying a country that can continue to abort children better take a look at its heart. And we better measure what we do by God's standards and not man's. I don't care what's legal in a court of law. We better be asking questions about what God cares about. And God loves little children. They are very precious to him. Uh, Historian Alvin Schmidt points out how the spread of Christianity and Christian influence on the government was primarily responsible for outlawing infanticide, child abandonment, and abortion in the Roman Empire. Do you know they found a letter? It's a letter that dates back to around the time of Jesus, maybe a little earlier, where a husband is communicating with his wife, and he's kind of a Roman or a Hellenist. You know, he's from Roman Greek culture, and, he, and his wife is expecting, and he writes her a letter. He's traveling, and he says, if a boy is born to us, good, keep it. If it's a girl, cut her off or kill her. The view on children in Hellenistic society was brutal, and the Christian church in the Roman Empire actually had a huge part in their influence in changing those values and treasuring children. In fact, B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, said that childhood owed as much to the gospel as womanhood. In other words, when the Christian gospel was manifested in the Roman Empire, and for that matter, any part of the world, women were elevated, children were elevated, families were elevated. And of course, this goes all the way back to Jesus, who treasured women, and women supported him in his earthly ministry, and were around him, and were there at the empty tomb. And Jesus's, you know, tender touch upon children. Uh, Irenaeus, the great church father, said, Jesus came to save all by means of himself, who through him are born again unto God, infants and children and boys and youth. He therefore passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, a child for children, and a youth for youths. Jesus Christ loves the little children, and so should we. And Jesus was indignant. The, the word indignant in verse 14 is a combination of a couple of Greek words. It means to grieve much, or he was much grieved, or he was greatly afflicted. The word indignant has the idea of a mixture of grief and anger. You want to know what made Jesus angry? The disciples looking down on little children and trying to hinder them. Jesus said in an earlier message that you and I studied a few weeks ago that it would be better that a heavy millstone be hung around somebody's neck and he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Then he stumble one of these little ones from who believe in me uh, if he stumble them or keep them from me. And so we can see Jesus' tender love for the children. And so he, he wanted them to come. And indeed, I think the little children were drawn to Jesus' love. Uh, those of you who are considering marriage and family, you might want to watch how your potential uh, the, the person that you're dating or thinking about how they treat children. Jesus said, don't hinder these little kids, verse 14, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 26 years and um, when uh, she has a, a brother who's now in heaven and 
Uh, her brother died of leukemia, tragically. Um, you know, it was, it was way back, uh, you know, some 50 years ago now. And I remember one night we were having a conversation about her brother, and she was, you know, kind of hurting over that loss. And uh, her brother died right in front of her. He was, I think, five or six years old. And uh, we, took some, we took some solace in this verse that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And there were little, little infants coming to Jesus. And you know, Jesus said, if, unless you become like a little child, you're not even, what, going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And you've got to humble yourself like a little child. And he says these words, truly I say to you, 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, you might want to note this, shall not enter it at all. Now, whatever this means, it's pretty important. <laughs> Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not, what? See the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So we should try to understand that. What do we know about a child that might give us some insight? I think if you were to boil it all down, we could talk about trust. We could talk about all those things. Maybe that a child is not pretentious. They'll just speak their mind. They don't think about all the angles of that kind of stuff. But I'll tell you this. If you think about infants and babies in this context or little toddlers, here's what, how a child comes. Completely dependent, resourceless. They must depend fully on their parents to take care of them. And I think what Jesus is saying is unless you come like that, unless you come like a child who has to wholly depend upon the grace of God to be saved, you're not coming at all. That, my friends, is a sobering insight. And he took them, that is the children, verse 16, in his arms, and he began blessing them, and uh, he was laying his hands upon them. I think here we can clearly see Jesus was hugging them, probably had a child in his arms, and he would place his hand on their head, and he would speak a blessing to that little kid. Probably some pretty cool eye contact. Wouldn't you like to have some footage of how Jesus interacted with kids? Did he look at them and go, I don't know. But he was blessing them and he was holding them. Jesus touched them. He loved them. Man, how we need touch. It's so important. Appropriate touch. Hugging. Don't stop hugging and kissing the ones you love. Never stop. I still kiss my boys, and they have five o'clock shadows. It's a bit painful to me and to them. But anyway, we won't go there. Now, the man that is about to come to Jesus is a, quite a contrast to the little kids. They're resourceless. They, ha they must come in total reliance upon their parents and God. But the man who's about to approach Jesus, a very familiar story, is the opposite. He's young. He's rich. He's a ruler self-assured, living a pious life. Here's how the story goes. As Jesus was setting out, verse 17, Mark 10, on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him, so the posture is encouraging, and he began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a great question, and I don't think this was necessarily flattery. I think it was a legitimate question. Some people say maybe he, he spoke it in macho terms knowing who the man was, that he was very self-assured, very, very successful man. But he's got a question, and this is the question of all questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you want to know? Do you want to know how Jesus responded? In John 6, the people said, what, what, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, John 6, 28, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has, what? Sent. What God wants you to do is believe in his son. He wants you to believe in his historicity. He wants you to believe in his death and resurrection. He wants you to believe in his current high priestly ministry. He wants you to trust his son. He wants you to trust the sacrifice that the father made on your behalf. And so he calls him good teacher. What shall I do in, to inherit eternal life? You might Think of this man as maybe waiting in the wings as Jesus blessed the little children. As Jesus made his statement, unless you become like a child, you won't enter into the kingdom. Maybe he was waiting there. Maybe part of the rebuke of the disciples was something like this. Hey, kids, don't bother the master. There's important people waiting over here to talk to him. Maybe somebody like the rich young ruler. 
But he bided his time. He waited. He heard Jesus preach, obviously. Maybe he saw signs. Maybe he was waiting in the wings. And his moment was there. There was a bit of an opening. And so he comes to Jesus. Matthew's account. He says, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What do I have to do, Lord? What good thing? You know, a lot of people in our culture are asking, what good thing or things must I do? If you go and interview people on the streets of Corona right now, you put a microphone in their face and say, do you think you're going to heaven when you die? Most people will appeal to their own goodness. Most people will say to you, I think I've been a pretty good guy or a pretty good girl. And then they'll start to tell you what they've done. And sometimes it includes that they have a neighbor who goes to church and they're not even as bad as that person. They've actually said that about a few of you in here. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But you know, people are... Uh, what we call uh, sometimes in American evangelism that we have to overcome is what's called good person syndrome. People default to the fact that they think they've done enough good to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that's been borne out in Hollywood movies. The good guy ends up in the light and, and you name it. But it's not just in our culture. It's in every world religion, every ism that's based upon your good outweighing your bad. Laws of karma in Eastern religions or even in Islam, good angels and bad angels on your shoulder and, and you've got to have enough good works to outweigh your bad works. And it, and it, it runs through every thread of humanity and religion. And, and the reason is, is because it's something in us that we can do. It's something I can control. It's something that I can appeal to something that I've done. In the Mormon church, it's you know, 20 laws and ordinances that you must keep. And Jehovah's Witnesses, you got to go door to door. And I could continue to name for you what people do. In some religions, it's what you did in your past life that's catching up to you now. And all these things run through threads of humanity. And people, they, they appeal to these things. And Jesus challenges the man's assertion. He says, verse 18, Mark 10, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some liberal skeptics of the Bible say, here it is, Jesus is denying that he's God. No, he's not. In fact, I believe he's affirming that he's God. I think what he's saying to the rich young ruler is, if you call me good, are you ready to deal with the implications of what you just said? Because no one is good except God alone. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, wait a minute now, we call we say that's a good man or that's a good woman. Oh, the Bible says that we can have goodness in us. Don't get this wrong. The Bible doesn't say that there's not a good man or a good woman. I could give you verses on that from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Those verses are there. But God alone is intrinsically good. What does that mean? That means within his very nature, he's nothing but good. God is good. And by the way, Jesus affirms God's goodness. In case you wondered, and some people do wonder. People wrestle with the problem of evil in our world. And they say, if God is good, if God is so loving, then why? And then you fill in the blank. But Jesus said, look, God is good. Some of you just need to hear that this morning. God is good. He is good. The Bible says this over and over and over again. No one is good except God alone. And Jesus is appealing really now to the standard of, of righteousness or good, which is only in God. You know, the Bible says there's no one righteous, no, not one. We all, we all lack goodness. We all miss the mark. That's, that's the issue. And Jesus calls him good teacher. And Jesus confronts him. He wants I think what Jesus is doing is, is he's trying to say to him, look, if you're going to call me good, are you willing to deal with the implications of what you just said? Jesus appeals to the goodness of God and something else that's good in verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. He says to the man, I'm assuming now that this man is a Jewish man. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Commandment number six. Look at verse 19. Do not commit adultery. That's commandment seven. Do not steal. That's commandment number eight. Do not bear a false witness. That's commandment number nine. Do not defraud. That's probably commandment 10. Honor your father and your mother is commandment number five. So Jesus gives them commandments five through 10. 
And this is interesting because the Bible says in Romans 7, you can look at Romans 7 about verses 7 through 14, the Bible says that the law is good. And the reason why the law is good is because God is good and the law comes from God. Amen? These are God's commandments, not man's. Gods. And by the way, there's battles in America now everywhere whether we should have Ten Commandments posted in places. Do you know why? Because some people say that if they're posted, people will look at them. And if, they, and if people look at them, they might be influenced by them. <laughs> like, uh, don't kill people and don't commit adultery on your wife and don't steal stuff and don't covet and don't lie. You know, I know those are questionable things. Maybe we shouldn't be teaching them to the young people today. You know how good they're doing today. <laughs> oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Man, once you remove the law, what do you got? If everything becomes relative and subjective, then we're in trouble. You hear the story, you know, professor, Christian professor's telling a story, and he says, yeah, back in the dorm in college, we were having debates about relativism, and relativism basically says that everything's, you know, truth just depends on how you look at it. If it's true for you, then it's, I'm so sick of hearing that. If it's true for you, it must be true, but for me, <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't do voices like that, but that's sometimes how it comes across. And you're like, shut up. <laughs> I don't know if that was from the spirit of the flesh, but you'll have to determine that. <laughs> what do you mean if it's true for me, it's true? So they're having a debate in a college dorm room and you know, the, the young college student, full of relativism from our, you know, much of our teaching in society says, uh, all truth is relative. Is that an absolute statement? See, as soon as you say that everything's relative, you've just made an absolute statement and you've just contradicted yourself. So the young man, budding uh, Christian professor, takes the man's uh, boom box out of the dorm room and begins to leave. And he goes, hey, hey, what are you, hey, that's mine. And he goes, well, uh, my truth is that I can take other people's stereos whenever I want. Are you going to now appeal to a moral absolute like thou shall not steal? You see, this works when we're just talking about, you know, subjects or maybe we're having a cup of coffee, but it doesn't work in real life. The commandments sound pretty good when someone's trying to steal your car or cheat with your wife or kill you. Then it's pretty good to say, you know what, there is a law that says you shouldn't do this. See, our society is losing touch with that. And when you lose your moral bearings, folks, a society is in trouble. He said to him, notice his response, verse 20. He said, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. I'd like to interview his parents, right? Did he really honor you between the ages of 10 and 16? Because <laughs> if he did, I want to know what kind of cereal you were giving him. Now, he said, look, I've, I've done all this from my youth up is, is a phrase that we can trust means from my bar mitzvah. You became a son of the law. Bar mitzvah is a combination of son and law. And at your bar mitzvah, which happened when you were 13, you became responsible for yourself in Jewish culture. You became a son of the law, responsible to the law. So what he's saying is, from the time I was 13 until now, I've honored mom and dad. I haven't lied. I haven't killed anybody. Um, I haven't cheated and so he may be actually being legitimate here. You know, we could mock this, but he might be saying, you know what, Lord, I've tried hard. Paul said when it came to the external living out of the law, Philippians 3, 6, he said he was blameless. But when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, you know what he did with the law. He took the law to its depth. He said the law is a mirror. The law is a searchlight. You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. But I say, if you hate somebody in your heart, what? You're a murderer. You've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lust after a woman, you've committed what? Adultery in your heart. So Jesus took the law to a depth 
where when people were listening to Matthew, you know, if you want to write this down, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. He took it to the place where it really goes. See, God doesn't just look at what we do on the outside. The law glares into our heart. The law is a mirror to our soul. And Jesus had been talking about hardness of heart when he talked about divorce and uh, even the disciples. And looking at him, Jesus, look at verse 21, felt love for him. The ESV says, Jesus looking at him loved him. In case you're wrestling with Calvinism and Arminianism and the elect and the non-elect, and you're a student of theology, I'll say to you that this is an example in the Bible where Jesus loves somebody that is apparently an unbeliever. Interesting. Because some of our extreme Calvinist friends say that God does not love the non-elect, and they try to get around John 3.16, God so loved the world, and they say, well, maybe that's the world of the elect, Well, right here it says that Jesus loved this man. And you're going to watch him walk away from the Lord and not commit his life. So it is quite interesting that the Bible says that Jesus loved him. And I'll say this to you this morning on the authority of the Bible, that Jesus loves you. No matter where you are. No matter what you've done. No matter matter how you've cataloged your spiritual life. He loves you. That's why he came. And he said to him, one thing you lack... Go and sell, what's your Bible say? All you possess, give it to the poor, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Matthew's version says in Matthew 19, 20, that the young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? He sensed the lack in himself. That's why he's at Jesus' feet in the first place on his knees because if he didn't sense a lack in his life and if money is enough and being a cool, rich, young ruler is enough, why does he even come to Jesus in the first place? Because riches often show you the hollowness of life. Because when you have wealth, you realize that wealth is not the answer to everything. And there's been plenty of movie stars who have supported that. They're living on the top of a hill somewhere, but their life is a mess. And this man sensed a lack in himself. Sometimes rich people sense it more than poor people. Poor people just want to be where the rich man is. And the rich man says, you know what? Money's gotten me in trouble. Now, money's in and of itself, of course, is not a bad thing. But here's the deal. For this man, money had become his God. It had, you see, he said he had kept the law, but he had another God before the God of the Bible, and his God was mammon or money, and Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money or mammon. You can't. You'll cling to the one and reject the other. You can't do it. And this man was trying to do it. You see, his God was money, and Jesus attacked his God. This is not the usual. Jesus didn't say to every potential follower, go sell everything you have. Aren't you glad? I mean, the rich young ruler could have responded like this. Lord, did you say all? Did I hear you right? All? What what happened to the 10% thing? I'm good with 10%. Even, Even if you said 25. But what did you say? Sell all? Does all really mean all? Could we parse the word? Is that what it means in Greek and Hebrew? Yeah. Go sell. Do I hear 50%? (laughs) And we're hard on the rich young ruler until we realize that in just living in America and having some extra money on the side and a couple of cars and a roof over our head, we're probably the most wealthy people on the planet. And if you came to Jesus and you said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to you, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. What would you do? Lord, uh, does this include all peripheral items? (laughs) Items for entertainment purposes? (laughs) Motorcycles? Golf clubs? I don't want to leave the ladies out. Purses. (laughs) That handbag I just bought that's so pretty. (laughs) Everything. Come on, Lord. Go sell everything you have. I don't know if you guys can feel that one. 
And the disciples have to be standing on the sideline and thinking, Lord, what do you say? He's wealthy. Add him to the disciples. He's got money. What would you be saying if you were waiting in the wings and you were one of the 12? Finally, somebody with money. And what's he doing? He's telling them to sell it all and give it to the sisters of mercy. Wait a minute. What about us? What about you, Lord? You don't even have a, you don't even have a pillow. Sell all you possess because then you'll have treasure in heaven. No, Jesus does not ask us all to sell everything to follow him, but, but this man's issue was his money and he had to be shocked almost like a coach who gets cold water dumped on him you know, when he doesn't see it coming, ice water. <gasps> he had to be shocked. I mean, maybe he came up to Jesus self-assured. Maybe he's thinking, you know what? Uh, I've been able to accomplish so much. I'm, Lord, what must I do? You remember the Syrian commander Naaman? He has leprosy, but he's a great man. And, and finally, he ends up at the prophet's house, and he wants to be healed of the leprosy, and he's got something like a million dollars with him to pay. And the, the prophet doesn't even come out. He says, just go in the Jordan and wash. And he's, he's like, what? I thought he was going to come out and wave his hand over me and, and, and call upon the name of his God. What do you mean dip in the Jordan seven times? We got cleaner rivers in Syria. And the servant said, well, what if he had asked you to jump on one foot for half an hour? Would you have done it? That's not the literal translation, by the way, but you get the point. What if he asked you to do some great thing? Would you have done it? And finally, he begrudgingly dips seven times in the Jordan and God touches and heals him. You see, Maybe this man was thinking, he's just going to tell me to do, you know, maybe a couple additional things, but, but he's asked me to sell everything and follow him. Response, Dante called this the great refusal, but at these words, 22, his face fell. Stugnasas is the Greek word. It's used in Matthew 16, Matthew 16 3, for the sky becoming overcast. The word speaks of shock fallen countenance and gloom for he was one that owned much property he was extremely wealthy the other gospels say and when jesus said this his face fell gloom hit him my computer is making noises here but the man's whole countenance fell because he realized what he was being asked to do he was being asked to count the cost. And he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. I wonder how many people, when, they're, when they hear the gospel preached and they, they have a sense about Jesus and they hear the terms of the contract. It's not easy believism here, guys. Yes, you start by just simply trusting as a child in Christ, but Christ wants to be your Lord. He wants to be everything to you. He wants to be your God. He doesn't want any other gods before him. And that's the commandment that the young man was breaking. And he walked away grieved and sorrowful. And he, he did it for money. Now, just reflect for a second. It's been 2,000 years since this encounter. Don't know where the rich young ruler ended up, but let's assume for the moment that he never repented. I hope he did. But if he didn't, and his soul is still alive today, he traded the opportunity of a lifetime to follow Jesus Christ, the God-man, the God who came down in human flesh one time, you know, in, in the very history in which we're embedded. Yes, he showed up in theophanies, but he became a man 2,000 years ago. And this ruler had a chance to follow him and have treasures in heaven, and he bailed on it for money. Money, property, which how long would that last him? Maybe he's in his mid-20s. Maybe he got another 60 years on the planet. Or maybe he lived and lived to 100. And then what? Wherever the rich young ruler is, I wonder what kind of conversations he's having with himself. Maybe he repented. We don't know. And Jesus, looking around, verse 23, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is. Luke 18, 24 says that Jesus looked at him and was sad. 
Get this, the rich young ruler, Luke 18.24, was sad and Jesus was sad. Jesus didn't just say these words. Jesus loved the man. Look, what he spoke, he spoke out of love because he knew that it was the man's possessions that were keeping him from a full relationship and commitment to God. Jesus spoke these words in love and when the man walked away, Luke 18.24 says that Jesus was sad. Do you want to know how Jesus responds when people reject him, sadness. And the only reason he's sad is because he loved him. And when people walk away in our generation, here's what we can infer from these verses, that God is sad. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, none. He wants all people to come to what? Repentance. Jesus was sad because he loved him. And I wonder how many times a day God's heart breaks. Because this tells us that God does not take away our free will. Jesus doesn't chase him down. He doesn't say, please reconsider, rich young ruler, please. He doesn't use his powers to get him to turn around again and reconsider. No, Jesus, get this, folks. Let him go. He let him go because God wants us to decide. Will we follow? There's free will right in front of us. And the disciples, 24, were amazed at Jesus' words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, in the Jewish mind, when you had uh, material wealth, they saw that as a blessing. They knew the stories of Job. They knew the stories of Abraham. They knew the stories of uh, Isaac and Jacob and other biblical characters who had much material possessions. And they seemed to be associated, at least at times, with blessing from God. In fact, one of the three pillars of Jewish piety was almsgiving. And so if you gave away all your property, how could you give to the poor, which was one of the signs of piety? So in the Jewish mind, they said, this doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus say this to him? And he says, it's easier for a camel. I wrote in my notes, humps and all, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, and they said to him, then who can be saved? Lord, if this is true, and material prosperity is an issue as well, then who can be saved? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Is There are some ancient sayings that um, used elephants in Persian expressions. The Persians expressed the impossibility by saying it was easier to put an elephant through the eye of a needle. Some people have talked about a gate that had this name, but I think Jesus is taking the biggest animal in Israel, the camel with humps and all, and the littlest opening, the eye of a needle, and saying, that's how hard it is. If you're going to get through, you're going to have to squeeze through humps and all to be saved. And, the Mark, and Mark says the disciples were even more amazed these words, at these words because they believed in an ancient rendition of what's called today prosperity theology taught by the rabbis that if you're rich, you must have the blessing of God. Looking upon them, Jesus said, 27, with men, who can be saved? <laughs> Jesus said, with men, it's impossible. But not with God for what? How many things? All things are possible with God. All things. That's why I'm standing here, by the way. Because Jesus pushed me through the eye of the needle. That's why I'm saved. And Peter began to say to him, now, you got to love Peter. Peter took all this in. And he said, behold, um, Lord, I'd like to just update you on current events, just in case you overlook this. Behold, we have left everything and followed you. That guy... Now, he's walking away all gloomy, but I would just like to remind you, Lord. Anybody ever do this in prayer? Lord, I'd just like to remind you how much I've given up to serve you. Boy, did you get one when you got me. <laughs> I fast and tithe and tithe and fast and share with people. And I even let people in when we're, I'm leaving the church parking lot. Go ahead. Peter says, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. 
kind of like this, what's in it for us? Now, Peter and his brother had left the fishing business, and Matthew left the tax collecting booth, and we know there was something to give up. They were away from, probably a lot of them away from family, and Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one, 29, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive how much? A hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. God takes nothing away from a man without restoring it to him and giving it to him in a new and glorious form. You know, I start to think about, what have I really given up to follow Christ? For me, it was heartache, emptiness, poor decisions, you know, things that were a bad example to others. That's what I've given up. What have I really given up to follow Christ? Anything that I've given up, and, and I can't even remember things that, you know, I was confronted with many decades ago now, they pale in comparison. They're nothing compared to knowing him, to knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, to knowing even the fellowship of his sufferings, knowing that I'm working for something that's going to last way beyond this life. But Jesus then says, but many who are first, and note the word many, will be last, and the last first. When we were at the men's retreat, we were in line for food. There's a lot of food up there. And uh, we're, you know, moving towards the front where you had your choice of all these different spreads. And some of the people in our group cut in line. <laughs> a very non-Christian thing to do. And, and so, you know, when you cut, have you ever, if you've ever cut in a line, you got to kind of play it off, you know, so you, so you cut in front of all these people and you go, hey, how you doing? Hey, hey, great to see you. We're family, right? But just so everybody knows, we know each other. That's when you should say, I have no idea who you are. Cutter, he's cutting. He cut. <laughs> See, we love shortcuts as Americans. What's the shortcut to? How many people have bought the 99.99 shortcut to wealth, right? If you buy these videos for 99.99, you too can own this, and you see all the properties and stuff, and then you get the package, and about the only thing that package has done is taken a place on your shelf somewhere collected dust while the man took your $100, right? We love shortcuts. But Jesus is saying, look, when it comes to following me, no shortcuts. In fact, I'm gonna ask you to be last because when you're last, when you become servant of all, then in my kingdom, you'll be first. You ever tried to apply it like at a potluck or a dinner? Maybe you're the first, you know, Maybe anytime food is made, they say, okay, the food's ready. Oh, nobody's going to ask me twice. <laughs> you ever just tried to cool your jets for a second? Go ahead. You know, Jesus did this in the upper room when he washed their feet. And this was very poignant because these guys continued to argue about who was going to be what? The greatest and they looked at this prosperous man, and, and now he's walking away gloomy, and they're saying, Lord, what about us? And Jesus says, look, you, you don't even realize what you're going to have in the presence of God. In the regeneration, you're even going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, but many who have placed themselves first, they're going to be last. And the last people we, we may not even expect are going to have a prominent place in the kingdom. Would you pray with me, Father? As we get ready now to receive the Lord's Supper, we thank you for the power of your word, the plainness of your word, the penetration. Oh, Lord, it goes deep. It makes me look hard at my motives. It makes me look hard at things that I put in front of you and sometimes even 
above you. Oh, Lord, cleanse our hearts. Forgive us for this me-first mentality that we often have, just like the disciples. We think of the rich young ruler coming with that question. We think of the children and the families that you blessed. We think of your heart towards all people. You loved him. You were sad when he walked away. We think of decisions that may even be made now in these moments where people are wrestling with whether or not they're going to give up their God, small g, and follow you. I'm just going to ask you right now in these few moments as the elements are about to come, do you know Christ? Are you his follower? Are you willing to say, Lord, resourceless I come, nothing can I bring? I'm just going to bring my brokenness and my contrition. These things you won't despise. Lord, I'm going to come as a child totally dependent upon your mercy, not my good works, not what I can bring to the table, but to your cross I will cling, to your shed blood, to your triumphant resurrection. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. If you haven't met Jesus, now's the time. Don't walk away. Jesus would say, follow me. And I'll restore to you what you're so afraid to give up. Would you make that decision right now? Would you say, pray it if it's you. Jesus, pray it out loud. Don't be ashamed of him. Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on the cross for me. Thank you that you rose from the dead. I repent. I turn from my sin. And I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Change me, Lord, from the inside out. You may be a prodigal. Maybe you've been away from the Lord for a long time. Maybe you've been trying to find the gods on the other side that promise so much and you've found that they're bankrupt. You, you want to come home. His arms are open for you. You might want to just do some business with him before you take of the Lord's Supper and, and say, Lord, I'm sorry for running. I want to be your follower. I'm going to lay down the things that have so easily stumbled me and come between that relationship. Do business with him right now if that's you. And Lord, for the precious saints that are here, who are serving you, who love you, who are trying to use what you've given them to extend your kingdom, may you bless them, may you meet them at your table. May you refresh their souls. May you reinvigorate their faith. May you strengthen them from the top of their heads to the bottom of their feet. May you strengthen them in their souls. May they put on the Lord Jesus Christ and find beauty and love and all that they need, Lord. We just want to say we love you and we thank you that you died for us and rose for us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.